Welcome to The Art of Range, a podcast focused on rangelands and the people who manage them. I'm your host, Tip Hudson, range and livestock specialist with Washington State University Extension. The goal of this podcast is education and conservation through conversation. Find us online at artofrange.com. My guest today on The Art of Range is Charles Mann. He is the author of several books and the winner of a National Academies Communication Award a few years ago. Uh, but we're here today to talk about 1491, New Revelations of the Americas Before Columbus. I have recommended this book more times than I can count since I read it a couple of years ago uh, because it touches on so many things of importance to natural resource use. Charles, welcome. It's a pleasure to be with you. First, I think it'd be useful for the listening audience to have some idea of, of who you are. Uh, what is your background and what made you interested in anthropology and recent natural history? How did you come to be interested in the topics enough to delve into it such that you could write a book about it? Well, um, my background is pretty simple. I um, majored in mathematics um, in college, quickly realized that I wasn't going to be a mathematician. The competition was pretty steep and I was pretty good at math for an ordinary person, but not good at math in the terms of mathematicians. Hmm. Um, and so I became a, a journalist um, because I'm not scared of numbers. Uh, I became a science journalist, uh, partly because that was something I could do and partly because I'm convinced that discoveries in science and technology are kind of the driving force for much of what happens today in our, in our lives. And so I wanted to, you know, chronicle things that I was pretty sure were important. Um, ever since I was a kid growing up in the Pacific Northwest, I've been real interested in the environment and environmental issues. And so it was natural for me to take a look at uh, in environmental science. And uh, I wasn't all that interested in anthropology, though I took some anthropology courses. Um, I didn't. I just was curious about it. I didn't really connect with anything else that I was uh, doing until uh, I kind of accidentally um, assignment ended up in the Yucatan Peninsula, which is the big peninsula um, that uh, juts out of Mexico into the Caribbean in the early 1980s, and uh, there. I visited some of the Maya ruins and I was absolutely flabbergasted. I'd lived mm -hmm. in briefly in Greece and Rome, and these were larger than anything I saw in Greece and Rome in terms of the scale. And uh, to my eye, at least equally sophisticated. And I thought, this is really strange. I mean, I learned about Greece and Rome in school. I think we should. But I don't know if the word Maya was even mentioned. Mm -hmm. um, when I went to school. And so I, on my own, I went back several times and just happened that uh, I was going at the same time as the Maya writing was being deciphered. This is really a remarkable intellectual feat. Um, normally, when you decipher um, unknown languages, you know, like Linear B and so forth, there's like what they call crib, which is where you have a text with the same meaning in several different languages. and You can compare one to the other and that helps you. 
They didn't have anything like that for the Maya. They just figured it out basically out of sheer smartness and the help of local Maya people themselves. And uh, this is just a tremendous intellectual feat. And I was fascinated by it. And then I gradually realized that there, there are things of equal interest happening in South America and in North America, but that archaeologists and anthropologists themselves often didn't know it because the disciplines were so split up. And when you added them up together, it created a picture of what the Americas had been like before Columbus that was completely different from anything that I had imagined. And I thought, you know, somebody should write a book. Yeah, I think that's a good idea. Which book did you write first? For some reason, I have in my head that you wrote 1493 first and ran across research that was compelling you to write about the history before Columbus after you had written about the Americas after Columbus. But is that the way it went? That's true. That's true. I thought somebody should write a book, but I didn't think it should be me. (laughs) (laughs) And uh, instead, at the same time, because you, you know, have different ideas swirling around in your head. um, I had read, just come across by chance, a, a remarkable book called Ecological Imperialism by Alfred Crosby that was also written in 1980s. And it was about what, um, Dr. Crosby called the Columbian Exchange. In fact, he'd written an earlier book called The Columbian Exchange that named it. And that was the enormous interchange of plants and animals and microbes and you know creatures of all sort that occurred after Columbus. As you probably know, um, 200 million years ago, mm-hmm. the Earth consisted of a single giant landmass, scientists call it Pangaea, and um, this you know geological forces split it up. And for tens of millions of years, the you know, our hemisphere and the Eastern hemisphere were separated. You know, the ecosystems here evolved almost completely isolated from each other. And then suddenly they were brought, um, you know, back into connection through the ships of Columbus and the people who followed him. And on mm-hmm. those ships, in addition to all the people, were all these other creatures. And they had this had enormous impact. In fact, we're still rippling in the, you know, we're still living in the ripples of that. And um, and so I was thinking that would be something to do because Crosby's book had stimulated an enormous amount of research. So I thought I could do an updated. I checked with Crosby. He didn't want to update his own book. And I thought, well, I could do that. And then I thought, well, I should really know something about what the Americas were like before Columbus. And that brought me back to this Mm -hmm. other idea. And uh, I started writing it out and I realized, okay, I have to write this. This is the one I should write first. Mm -hmm. 1491. Yeah. What was the very first book that you writ- wrote? Was this it? No, no. Um, I've written a couple books in collaboration with other people. And uh, I wrote okay. a book about f- physics. They were very, you know, very different uh, things. This is the first book I wrote on my own yeah, without a collaborator. Got it. Okay. Um, maybe before we jump into some of that, I want to just cover something real quick. Uh, in In the book, you refer to Native Americans or indigenous peoples as Indians, and that term has become somewhat controversial, maybe more so since the time of writing the book. Um, I mentioned in our previous correspondence that I had been writing back and forth with Dr. William Denovan, and uh, I, in, in reading his essay, Nature Rebounds, I quote you on this, but I'd like to hear your thoughts directly on, on why you use the term Indian with a capital I in the book instead of, you know, some other of the various names that have been uh, proffered for how to refer to the people who were here before us. Well, first, there's no real good name for, you know, collective noun 
um, for the people who lived in the Americas, the, you know, the original inhabitants. Um, And by that, I mean uh, a name that's generally accepted by those people themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Canada, for example, you know, it's common to call them first nations, um, mm-hmm. here it's native Americans, but if you go to, you know, Peru or something, and I referred to, uh, native Americans quite, you know, several times there was rebuke. No, 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 no. Native Americans are the people up North. We're Indians. <laughs> That's <laughs> and interesting. The second thing is, so. You know, any name you need is going to be a bad name. Because, and there's a, right. actually a deeper reason for that, which is, um, you know, at the time that we're talking about, the time of, uh, you know, um, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people back then didn't think of themselves as, quote unquote, Indians, you know, this big collective thing, any more than people in Europe in, you know, 1000 AD thought of themselves as Europeans. They were French or they were, you know, Celtic or whatever they were. And Mm -hmm. so any name is going to be kind of artificial. Um, Mm -hmm. So Indians is the name that the great bulk of the people that I talk to use to refer to themselves. Um, You know, a little while ago, uh, I had a dinner with a uh, Comanche archaeologist. Uh, Com- she's Comanche and, and uh, Pueblo, Meriwaki, um, and she was telling funny, you know, telling funny stories. And uh, she talked talk about something that surprised her. And she said, "Whoa, Indian! Wait a minute!" You know, so mm-hmm. you know, so that kind of thing. Um, you 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 hear a great deal, and that's why I did it. I tried to you know indicate in a whole section of the book that look, this is the compromise I made, and this is why I made it. There's a section of the book at the back where I sort of say, look, there's no good name. This is why I chose. Right. You you refer to that same phenomenon with the names, more specific sounding names that have been given to all kinds of different groups of. Yeah of people, Olmecs and Aztecs. And, you know, all those were names that were invented by somebody besides them. Right. To refer to a specific people group. Yeah. And, and things have changed since I wrote the book. And so now I use um, Indian a bit less because more and more people are using um, in, in the word indigenous, which wasn't nearly as common uh, 20 years ago. Um, and the other thing that I'm trying to do is uh, as native groups have resurged, I'm trying to uh, use more and more of what they, the names they call themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, uh, the, you know, you do, I mean, the simple one is you don't say Sue, you say Lakota. Um, mm-hmm. And that's because, uh, quote unquote, Sue people, you know, many of them don't like the name. As they perceive it as being an insult given to them by um, by their by their neighbors. There's a little bit of linguistic <laughs> argument about that, but the point is they don't like it, so it's pretty easy to say Lakota, right? Right, right. If you didn't want me to call you Charles, I'd call you something else. Right, right. It's just a matter. I try to be polite. Basically, I see it as a matter of politeness. Right. Yeah, I, th- I think one. Of, there's so many topics we could cover. It's hard to know where to start. But, but one common entry point that's that comes up in various things that have been written about. 1491 is is the claim that the population of the americas was much much larger than we than we think it was during the say thousand years before european arrival you know which happened over a period of time not a not at 1492 but but still you know we have i think the idea that there were sort of scattered hunter-gatherer groups in 
you know, groupings of a few family units and they um, were semi-nomadic and were mostly hunter-gatherers. And um, correct me if I'm summarizing incorrectly, but I feel like the claim in the book is that in North and Central and South America, there were way more people than we think with a lot more cultural organization than we think to the extent that probably the population of the Americas was greater than that of Europe. Uh, and I'm not sure what timestamp you would put on that, but um, is that a good summary? And in, in, am I characterizing this correctly? Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I'll make a small correction at the end, uh, but yes, I mean, mm-hmm. the way to think about it is if you think about Europe at the time, you think mainly of, you know, cities like Madrid or Paris or, or London, although mm-hmm. you recognize that there were people, you know, living out in the, in, in the outback, you know, living in Lapland or, or, or something like that. But the actual right. cities, um, that's, you know, typically how you think of things. And the same thing is true of the Americas. Um, there are very, very definitely people, you know, who are nomadic and so forth, but the great bulk of the population was either living in cities or connected to them by, you know, they were farmers providing food for those cities. And so the setups in that way between Europe or Asia and the Americas weren't that different. Um, the exact number of people in the uh, Americas is that's a really difficult question because you're mm-hmm. uh, dealing with trying to guess the number of people who lived in buildings. And that requires knowing the number of people, knowing how much food you could grow, you know, knowing the number of buildings. There's a whole pile of uncertainties in there. But right. a reasonable way to say that is that uh, today, most archaeologists I believe would say that there are roughly 40 to 60 million people in the Americas at the time of Columbus. And I should note that that um, number keeps creeping up. And so mm-hmm. as a personal guess, this is just a guess, I wouldn't be surprised if you were, we were to be talking 20 years from now, it wouldn't have shaken out at 60 to 80 million people. Mm-hmm. And another way of saying that is that was very, very roughly the same population as that in Western Europe at the, at the time. And so it's conceivable there may have been more people here, but you know what we're talking about is that they're roughly the same order of magnitude. Yeah, and how would you say that the average American, if there is such a thing, thinks of Indians from that time period, from before Columbus? Well, you know, this, this, the average Americans are constantly moving targets. So, <laughs> but right. I, I, I think. Many, many people have in their head, uh, you know, a picture of a, a guy on a horse uh, with one of those hats with lots of feathers, um, you know, uh, chasing after buffalo. Um, and it was absolutely true. There were people who wore those hats, although not that many, um, and they chased mm-hmm. after buffalo. But in fact, there are just much, much more uh, diverse group of peoples and than that image. And so you, you know, mm-hmm. and if you prodded Americans, they say, Oh, right, right. There are those people in the Pueblos, you know, maybe if they live in the Northwest where I was raised, they would know that there are these giant um, houses and these, you know, complex societies with, you know, with the totem poles and these very, mm-hmm. very elaborate, um, you know, ceremonies who ate salmon, you know, there's, there's all kinds of stuff uh, going on. And so part of what I was trying to do in 1491 was just to say, you know, this single word Indian um, 
which you know is widely used, actually masks an enormous thriving diversity of um, millions upon millions of people who lived in many, many different ways. And that uh, this is really interesting to learn about. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I mentioned that I had talked with Dr. Denovan, and mm-hmm. he was one of the first people who was paying more attention uh, to some of the evidence of larger scale civilization in Central America. Uh, describe how you ended up getting in contact with him and using him as one of the primary resources for the book. Well, uh, Bill Denovan, William Denovan, he's a cultural geographer at uh, the University of Berkeley, California, Berkeley. And uh, he's uh, retired now. And he is a beyond any question, one of the greatest scholars that I've, I've ever met. And uh, he uh, studied mostly South America and mostly the Amazon, but also, um, which is huge, right? The Amazon basin is just this huge area, but also um, the uh, areas um, to the West, you know, the, the Andes. And um, he was one of the first people um, in, you know, outside those areas to say, look, just look, there is evidence of extraordinary things here. And um, one of the beginning parts of my book, I describe how he was flying over uh, lowland Bolivia in a small plane in the um, early 1960s. And he looked down and there are all these causeways and roads and uh, obviously artificial mounds built. And he looked and he said, there's an incredible human landscape here that is almost nobody knows anything about. And um, amazingly, you know, 70 years later, we're still learning about it. It's just beginning to come to light the full sort of, de- uh, you know, ramifications of what he saw in the early 1960s. Yeah. And, and I would, I would add to that. There's been a lot of talk in the world of agriculture, which is more my mm-hmm. uh, domain about Terra Preta and, and, some revelations about how the people in that part of the world overcame some of the natural biological limitations or what were perceived to be, you know, limitations to civilization through agriculture, you know, with various means of uh, enhancing soil fertility and being able to grow food. Uh, yes. I'm actually not an agronomist. I'm more of a rangeland ecologist dealing with native plant communities. But uh, was that some of what he was finding? Oh, yes. I mean, it's something that he's, uh, you know, was a, a lead. I mean, he did many things and that was that was one of them. And what he was finding is, if you think about it, um, you can imagine that every different human society is like an experiment in how to be human, um, an experiment to, you know, how do we feed ourselves? How do we mm-hmm. organize ourselves? How do we rule ourselves? And uh, the hundreds or thousands of different uh, diverse societies in the Americas came up with all kinds of different ways of uh, doing things. And one of the areas that they were most innovative in was agriculture. And a great deal of indigenous agriculture in the Americas was so different from European agriculture and European ideas of what agriculture was that the first Europeans who came over couldn't really even recognize recognize what they were seeing as as Mm -hmm. agriculture. And a big part of that difference was um, it was quite often you saw polyculture, you know, where people are growing multiple crops um, in the same area. Mm -hmm. And they were um, huge areas where they had what, um, you know, we typically call semi-domesticates, which are um, plants that are 
you know, landscapes that are encouraged to have useful plants with absolutely minimal human um, labor. And uh, so that you can you can grow things with hardly paying any attention to them at all. And this kind of extensive mixed agriculture is about as different from European style agriculture, which focuses on monocultures of cereal crops, you know, within fenced mm -hmm. um, fields, as you can imagine. And uh, similarly, there's uh, all kinds of tools that uh, that they used for agriculture that were not widely employed in Europe, although sometimes they had been in the distant past. And so that there was a kind of Stephen Pine calls it pyroculture, where you used um, fire to manage um, uh, entire landscapes. There was a kind of water harvesting that took place in places like the Southwest that was also unfamiliar to uh, Euro Europeans. And then there was these um, aquatic gardens in the um, Pacific Northwest. There's tons of stuff going on um, in terms of agriculture that and uh, landscape management that was, I think, really interesting. And as climate change is forcing us to reconsider what we're doing in different um, areas and making some of the things we've been doing harder and harder, uh, this represents, to me at least, in my opinion, uh, a well of knowledge and ideas that uh, we should be thinking about. Yeah, I think there are several ways in which we're almost moving back to the future in our response to some of these challenges. I mean, even before climate change was a, a concern, we were legitimately concerned about uh, eventually declining oil production and the mm -hmm. synthetic fertilizer that comes from it, where we're you know, currently still pretty much dependent on that. And there's been a lot of interest in reintegrating livestock into cropping systems and moving toward things like polycultural agricultural production. Uh, and I think you're right. I think we're rediscovering maybe what people had been doing for a long time that we just don't know about because there aren't written records of it. Yeah. Although there are clear sort of archaeological records and people doing this to, to this day. So it's, um, you know, really fascinating to, to, to me to see, you know, obviously, you know, and this now we're sort of veering off of, you know, what's known into opinion. So I might mm -hmm. say, well, I make that clear. Um, but my opinion is that uh, there, that there is a lot that we can uh, learn. Um, and, and, you know, again, in terms of principles, we have to do this in a modern way. We're not going to, you know, exactly copy what people did, but we're saying, wait a minute, there might, you know, with our technology, is there a way we can go after some of these same things in our way? Sure. Uh, when speaking of opinion, you you allude in the book to a, a pretty significant, I don't know if it's a, a divide, but at least a, a debate in the world of anthropologists and geographers uh, regarding even now how to view the peoples, particularly of Central America and South America. Uh, what would you say are the competing views of, of those civilizations? Well, I, you know, there, there's a lot of different, I mean, archaeology is a contentious field. And so there's a lot of different um, disputes uh, about that, you know, ranging from a big one is, you know, were they awful, you know, because of things like human sacrifice? How should one think about that? Um, another one is, uh, you know, uh, that is where the population centers were. 
um, how many people were lived there and how were they conquered if there were so many people there. Um, so there, there's mm-hmm. uh, so but I'm thinking that you must be the, um, a, a, another one is, you know, how did they feed themselves? And, uh, uh, you know, there was a, a whole variety of different ways that they employed what was actually the, the backbone of feeding these um, large scale um, societies. So there's just, you know, this is a, a, a field with no shortage of arguments. So I, I'm happy to go into any yeah. one of them. Which ones were you thinking about most particularly? Yeah, the the one that I'm thinking of uh, is probably the the size of the population and the the scale of uh, local localized civilization, the scale of uh, cities and agriculture, particularly in Central and South America. Well, so that was uh, one of the most densely populated parts of the world, you know, when uh, when the Spaniards arrived. And mm-hmm. I don't think there's much argument uh, about that um, in, anymore. But exactly how many people mm-hmm. there? Um, there's two um, famous uh, demographers, well, you know, famous in the world of demography <laughs> um, named Cook and Bora, who um, did some large scale studies of this in the 1960s and thought that there were about um, if memory serves, about 30 million people in central Mexico alone, um, which is an extraordinarily large amount for the world of, um, you know, 1500 mm-hmm. in that small area. And um, they were, you know, largely ruled by what's been called the Aztec Empire, which is a collection of three allied city states. And it's probably better to call them something like the Triple Alliance, which is closer to what they call themselves, mm-hmm. which the dominant member was Tenochtitlan, this extraordinary city um, that was built like Venice in the middle of a lake on all these islands in um, in, in central Mexico. And uh, it was like Venice, as I said, except it um, had a population of about 200,000 um, general is a typical estimates, you know, somewhere between a hundred and two, 200,000 and Venice's population at its height was about 90,000. So it's like Venice, mm-hmm. but much, much bigger, um, much cleaner. Also, um, the Spaniards who went there constantly remarked on how clean it was. Uh, it was, you know, by contrast, Madrid in those days had a population of about 40,000. So you can see it was just a gigantic place. And mm-hmm. um, so how did it feed itself? And um, one of the remarkable innovations they had is they took the muck up from this sort of brackish uh, lake that was um, that was created. It was in a basin surrounded by mountains. They, cre- uh, they had this swamp. They turned it into a lake. And then they took all the muck and they piled it up and they created these um these these sort of agricultural islands called um, chinampas that with this super rich soil and they were they were absolutely fantastically productive so that was one way that they fed themselves with these um floating so to speak um farms you know that surrounded the the city but they also had maize fields you know corn fields um, everywhere and these were um irrigated especially um along the west of um, mexico by these um irrigation systems that were some of the old in, in the world, and there's uh, some of them that are you know seven eight thousand years old, and uh, they created these very productive um, you know agricultural systems that you know may have been more important even than the chinampas. And then finally, further up north, you had agroforestry practiced on a large scale where you had tree crops that were managed largely by fire. So you 
so the, the record is, um, and that's really quite striking, is that for these 30 million people, famine certainly existed in your bad years, you know, just as there were everywhere else. But there's many, many fewer of them um, in from the historical records, which are pretty good, um, you know, in the two or three hundred years before um, Europeans arrived, than in those equivalent two or three hundred years in um uh, in, in Europe. And if you would like some really depressing reading, you can read um, Fernand Brodel's masterwork, Civilization and Capitalism, where he describes, uh, you know, he sort of counts up the number of famines in Europe um, in, you know, the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. And there is, you know, put it on average, there is a, a large scale famine in Europe every 10 years. Hmm. And that just simply wasn't the case because of this whole, you know, super diverse um, system that they had in uh, in Mesoamerica. Mm-hmm. I think you mentioned in the book that there are some of these cultures are the ones that we associate with um, having a lot of gold, and you make the point that they did not see the gold as as valuable. Can you talk about that? Sure. They thought it was pretty. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you know right. Uh, it was, right. And uh, one of the striking things is that uh, in the Andes, especially the Andes are full of, you know, precious metals, um, you know, pr- uh, particularly silver, um, but they also had gold. And so the Inca liked gold, but they and they had this entire um, elaborate system of metalwork, but it was not as a species of value. It was just this really cool stuff. And so um, the central the Cusco, which is the capital of the, it had this Ocapata, this huge plaza um, with uh, that with this white white sand brought in from the um, from 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 the ocean, and then it was surrounded by buildings that were constructed at slopes that um, were sheathed in gold leaf. And so you can imagine the light, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. is, um, in this high place up 9,000 feet of this place surrounded by uh, uh, gold leaf and white sand. It was it must have been absolutely spectacular. Yeah. Um, and uh, they, but on the other hand, they were completely bewildered by um, the fact that Europeans, you know, would like fight and kill for this stuff. Uh, you know, to them, <laughs> it would be like. I don't know. Can you imagine groups of people coming in and invading um, the United States and going to all the hardware stores and looting all the paint? Right. <laughs> right. You'd say right. like, why would you invade the country and take paint? <laughs> and it, because that just wasn't what they used as a, as a system of value. Mm-hmm. And there was pretty widespread commerce. How, how, far through the Americas were these groups trading with each other? Um, it's extensive. And this is just something that people do. Um, you know, they, they trade mm-hmm. in widespread ways. And so um, the biggest city in North of Rio Grande um, for a long time was Cahokia. Um, and uh, that's right across the Mississippi from um, St. Louis. Um, you know, it is at uh, near the uh, junction of is at the Mississippi and, you know, the junction of some major rivers and mm-hmm. um, it uh, and there's these medallions that rich people wore and they would have. Um, let me see that they, they had copper from Canada, um, you know, Lake Superior. Uh, they had um, shell mother of pearl from the 
mouth of the Mississippi. They had Micah from the uh, Rocky Mountains. And I forget what was from the east side. But the point is that they had goods from the entire spread of uh, North America that would be in these sort of badges um, that uh, wealthy people wore. And that would be an example of the kind of there was an actual trade in mica from you know the Rocky Mountains across the entire plains to Cahokia. Um, mm-hmm. And there's trade up and down the Mississippi River. And that's the same thing is true in um, Central America. And in fact, the way that... Uh, that the Spaniards first learned about the Inca empire, which is the empire of the Andes was when a ship, you know, a trading ship from the um, Inca uh, showed up off the Mexican coast. And Hmm. uh, the the Spaniards went, Whoa, (laughs) you know, and it was a completely different kind of ship than it It was made out of balsa wood. And it had this kind of flexible shell and these, you know, everything about it was different than theirs, but they recognized what it was and Mm -hmm. they they, they chased after it. Um, And they found all the stuff on it that people were trading. And, you know, they said, anybody that can do that, we want to be interested in. And so they went after them. At the, at the time that Europeans started to make contact uh, had there already been some disease progression? I guess I, I think now is a good time to shift into what caused the demise largely of all of these different groups. Um, I, I feel like I remember from the book that, that the disease in some places preceded uh, the, you know, the larger scale arrival of, of people. Of Europeans, you mean? Europeans moving through these different, uh, you know, geographic regions. Was that the case? Yes. Um, The, um, you know, it it, it certainly um, happened. The the, the most well-documented case is that uh, there is smallpox, which is this very awful disease, which fortunately we have vaccines for, um, you know, rose up in Mexico City in the 1760s. And uh, by that time, um, horses, which were, did not exist in the Americas at the um, time that the Europeans arrived and Europeans brought over horses, quickly lost control of them. And by the 1760s, they're all over the place. Mm. Um, And so horses meant essentially that, that it's just much, much easier for a single person to travel long distance than it would, than it was in the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And so uh, it also unfortunately meant that people who are sick could you know, there, it broke, the disease well. would break out. Yeah, the people would yeah. flee the disease and they'd carry it. And so, um, there's an amazing book called Pox Americana by Elizabeth Fenn that tracks uh, this this um, epidemic, and it goes up from Mexico City straight up all the way to Canada, and um, goes uh, into the Pacific Northwest. So that by the 1780s, it's depopulating Canada, and the first large scale European exploration of the uh, Puget Sound, which you know in the northwest corner of what's now the United States, is uh, led by Captain Vancouver, and they find mm-hmm. essentially skeletons and bodies on the shore. Um, from people who have recently died of smallpox. And um, this kind of thing happened again and again as these diseases would push out um, into areas uh, where they were before Europeans. It certainly made the European conquest much, much easier. Right. And it sounds like this pretty much happened everywhere in North America, Central America. I mean, all the coasts of North America, Central and South America, what else was moving through the 
people that was a novel disease besides smallpox yeah. or was it mostly smallpox that wiped no, out? Smallpox is the, the, the worst. Um, but yeah. one of the things that had happened is, um, is that, uh, the Americas were initially settled by a relatively small group of people, um, who passed through the Arctic and it's difficult for, um, diseases to come along with them, you know, um, and so you don't want to say that the Americas were a disease-free paradise, but it is also true that the great majority of the common killers didn't exist in the Americas until Europeans brought them. And so in the first 150, 200 years after um, Europeans arrived, it was as if all the suffering and death that those diseases had caused in Europe and Asia and America were compressed into this 200 year um, period. And it was mm. the worst demographic catastrophe um, in the, you know, it, it, as, as far as is known in, in human history, it was a catastrophe in every way. And it was awful. Um, and um, so you had, you know, influenza, you had measles, you had smallpox, you had bartolosis, you had um, cholera, you had, um, you know, just the the, the, the the list of these things goes on and on and on. And they all came over um, from, from Europeans. And I would argue that this was the um, single most important part of why Europeans were able to conquer the Americas. And there's a kind of a natural experiment. Um, and, and, and I'm talking about this very abstractly as though humans <laughs> weren't involved and, you know, we're not talking mm -hmm. about human suffering and human diseases and, 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 and so forth. And I hope that's okay. I mean, uh, but you know, I, I'm talking like as if it's numbers rather than actual people, but I think it, you can get, you know, to try to make a point. Oh, sure. Um, we even apply that in the present. I mean, we hear yeah. that 50,000 people died overseas somewhere and it's just a number, even though we recognize in our head that those are real persons just like me and my neighbor and my kids yeah, who, right. who all died. Right. And so exactly, exactly. So the first, um, and, you know, attempt by Europeans to settle the East Coast of, um, well, you know, what's now the United States was in 1526. And there's a guy named Ilan, a, a Spaniard who uh, went, in, I think it was South Carolina. And um, it was a total failure. And the um, Native people there kicked him out. And there were numerous other attempts, 20 or so, um, before the first sort of marginally successful one, um, which was Jamestown in, you know, in 16, in 1607. And, um, that one came, I mean, they were abandoning it. They came within hours of um, being abandoned and only the fact that, and it, it was, they tried over and over and over again, like keep sending people over who died more than 80% of the original inhabitants of Jamestown died. Um, mm -hmm. that's, that, that's hardly what we would call a success. So the mm -hmm. first really, there's just, and if, and the same thing happens in Quebec, which is the other, um, example, but essentially none of these attempts succeed because the people die because they don't know how to feed themselves or the native people there get tired of them and kick them out. Um, until there's the first epidemic, which is in 1617 in Massachusetts. And um, then there's thereafter, there's more. And after that, all the European efforts to colonize essentially succeed. And so before mm -hmm. the epidemics, very, very low success rate. Um, 
after the epidemic's very, very high. So to me, this is like an indication of what the role is. And it's otherwise, it's difficult to explain how small groups of Europeans at the end of very long supply chains could survive and even thrive in ecosystems that were completely unfamiliar to them. Right. And with peoples that were not culturally inferior. I think this was one of my revelations in reading the book as an average American who had, you know, whatever view of Indians has been presented through, you know, the kind of history you get at school. Uh, you know, they say that history gets written by those who win. You know, we, we have a view of the Europeans that's maybe higher than it ought to be and a view of the Native Americans that they encountered as probably being lower. And so we have this idea that there was a, you know, a cultural superiority in terms of organization and weaponry and, you know, food, hygiene, you name it. But uh, you describe, you know, pretty vividly in the book that it was almost the exact opposite. Yeah. I mean, and it's not that surprising. The um, people in the Americas had had thousands of years to come up with um, technology that was appropriate to their situation. Right. And, um, you know, it's what people everywhere do. And another thing is that, you know, different cultures tend to, for whatever reason, develop um, different types of um, technology. And part of the reason that we sort of overestimate um, European technology. I think there's two reasons. One is in, you know, growing up in my mind, technology meant gears and wheels and things like that, you know, metal stuff that does stuff. Um, and so I looked and the Europeans had steel and the Europeans had clocks and I say, aha, they're, 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 they're you know, ahead. It mm -hmm. didn't occur to me that, um, things like that we were talking about, like chinampas, um, are a kind of technology. Right. Mm -hmm. that, that you can have biological technology um, and, you know, a very crude way to summarize the different, the, you know, immense differences between um, what was going on in Europe and what was going on in the Americas is to say that Europeans tended to be good at, um, you know, wheels and gears and that kind of technology. Gadgets, and, yeah. Yeah, gadgets, <laughs> which is a sort of a dismissive way of putting it. But and um, <laughs> the. Um, People over here tended to be better at what you can call biological or ecological um, technology. Yeah. And uh, what would have been great is both sides had enriched the others, but it didn't work out that way. Um, the second thing is that, you know, when we think about what we say, the Europeans had guns. And, you know, at least when I think of a gun, I think, you know, of, a, of the, you know, my, the rifle, you know, my, my grandfather's 22, right? right. Um, but that was completely unlike what Europeans actually were carrying. Um, you know, the yeah. European, you know, the 19, you know, uh, Cortez invaded with 19 cannons. Um, all of them were made out of iron. Um, all of them rusted uh, to unusability within a couple of weeks because they were not meant to go through um, the, tropics. the tropics, right? Yeah. Um, they had metal armor. They, discard, they discarded the metal armor, and soon Europeans wore the kind of cloth armor that the um, people in Central America did, which absorbed um, shocks. You know, so and on and on. Similarly, mm -hmm. the we think of the European swords. The European swords had real trouble with rusting the um, and they were not as sharp as the obsidian tip. They're called maquitos. Uh, I pronounced that right. I don't know. Um, <laughs> and I've seen them and they're these sort of 
flat wooden clubs with these razor sharp um uh, jagged edges um, around them. And there's clear descriptions in Spanish count that they're so heavy and sharp that they could cut off the horse head of a horse with a single blow. And oh, wow. they're, they're feared. Um, they're brittle. That was the weakness to them. So, mm-hmm. you know, one was brittle, the other rusted, um, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> there are defects in both. So that that kind of technological superiority in, in, in weaponry um, is, confused if we imagine you know in the back of our minds that they were using modern weapons instead of unrifled um you know fuse driven kinds of things that you that were heavy enough that you had to put on stands you know all that stuff you had to you had to do then now in the late 19th century you started to um europeans started to get modern um rifles and those were really much better than bows and arrows but not until then and probably only beginning to approximate the accuracy and uh you know deadliness of the bows and arrows, you know, which we, you know, we, I think even that we underestimate uh, likely what they had access to. It'd be maybe more like a sniper rifle, you know, than yeah, than a exactly. backyard toy. Right. Exactly. And you have to remember also that um, part of, in many of the native cultures growing up, as a boy, you spent an incredible amount of time training on these things because you're expected to, to hunt mm-hmm. and be, be good at using them. That was just not the case. You know, the, uh, you know, the pilgrims, I, I actually am descended um, from some of them. Uh, you know, they, they lived in Leiden and they were shopkeepers and they were, you know, they did fine things, but they were not trained from birth in, in, in the, the use of weaponry. And so the soldiers, um, so to speak, um, on each side were not equivalent. And you give a really good archer who's been working, doing it since birth, um, facing off against somebody with a 16th century gun, um, who's hardly ever used it, you know, mm-hmm. the, the, you know, over and over again, um, native people proved their superior. There's a new book that's just come out. It's sort of a military history of this uh, called by Pekka Hamelainen called Indigenous Continent. And he just lists how often Europeans lost these battles. Naturally, we like to focus on the ones that Europeans won. But, you know, if you add them up in, impartially, um, it was a much more even fight um, until the diseases came in. And what happened then? <clears throat> When the diseases came in, you know, when they would kill a third of the people in a society, we saw uh, it was disaster. I mean, we saw what happened um, in the United States just the last couple of years with a disease that was much, much less milder, dangerous, yeah, yeah than smallpox or uh, you know untreated measles, which bear in mind is what you had in those days, um, mm-hmm. will kill something like uh, five to ten percent of the people who get it, kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, smallpox can be up to 40%. So you're, you're dealing with just enormous losses of, of life. Here we lost a million people and society was shut down for two years and there's crazy political disputes and so forth. And it was actually, in terms of giant pandemics, a pretty mild one, which is sort of an awful thing to say to, uh, to the million people who lost their loved ones, but it was a mild uh, pandemic. Right, right. Whereas these diseases that were sweeping across both continents in this hemisphere were taking out 70 to 90% of the people. 
Yeah. Oh, oh, but again, it was like repeated assaults. So first, you yeah. know, there might be measles then there might be smallpox and there might be influenza. Then there might be, you know, uh, cholera. Then there might be and, and, and so forth. And so, um, you know, it was a, just a continual um, assault. Wave on, this. on wave. Was, mm-hmm. Yeah, it was just awful. This concludes part one of my conversation with Charles Mann. Make sure you are subscribed to the podcast for episode 96 and the second half of our conversation. Thank you for listening to the Art of Range podcast. You can subscribe to and review the show through iTunes or your favorite podcasting app so you never miss an episode. Just search for Art of Range. If you have questions or comments for us to address in a future episode, send an email to show at artofrange.com. For articles and links to resources mentioned in the podcast, please see the show notes at artofrange.com. Listener feedback is important to the success of our mission, empowering rangeland managers. Please take a moment to fill out a brief survey at artofrange.com. This podcast is produced by Connors Communications in the College of Agricultural, Human, and Natural Resource Sciences at Washington State University. The project is supported by the University of Arizona and funded by the Western Center for Risk Management Education through the USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed by guests of this podcast are their own and does not imply Washington State University's endorsement. Thank you.